Well, as the Sunday service began, the back doors of the church suddenly burst open, and three Chinese soldiers came in with machine guns yelling and screaming at everybody. Two of them stayed at the back doors, and the third one came to the front, and he said, everybody who is here is in violation of the law. This is illegal to meet like this, and you're going to be executed for breaking the law. Now, he said, I know some of you are here against your will, and so you have an opportunity to leave, but first you must deny that you are a Christian, and then you're free to leave. Several people in the congregation quickly stood up, and they said, I'm not a Christian, and they ran out the back door of the church. The soldier continued to yell and scream and threaten the congregation, and he said, "Uh, you are going to be killed if you stay here. You have to deny that you are a Christian. A few more stood up, and sadly, they said, I'm not a believer. And they walked with their heads hung low out the back door of the church. The soldier, pointing his machine gun at the crowd, then said for a final time, this is your last chance. If you do not deny that you're a Christian, you will be executed, and the church will be burned down around you. Nobody moved. He ordered the doors to be locked. The two soldiers that were at the back came to the front. All three raised their machine guns. But instead of shooting into the congregation, they laid them on the platform. And they said, we're sorry for what we just did, but we too are Christians. And we wanted to worship with other believers. And we had to make sure we were only among true Christians because we would be executed for our faith. Friends, if you had been in that church there in China on that Sunday morning, what would you have done? If somebody told you this morning, if the doors of Wayside burst open and somebody came in here and said, you must deny Christ or die, what would you do? Would you deny Jesus, the one who died for you and walk out of the door? Or would you give your life? Would you stand firm in the the face of persecution? Now, that question may seem extreme to you, but I want you to remember that there are believers all around the world today who are faced with that very decision. There are more Christians who have been martyred in this century than all 19 centuries combined before. There are Christians every day who are faced with a decision as to whether they will deny Jesus or give their lives. You know, sometimes we pull into the parking lot on a Sunday and we grumble because we had to get up early and we lost out on a little extra sleep or we're, we're giving up a day of play at the lake house or somewhere else. But there are Christians all around the world who know that uh, being a believer means they will give up their jobs, their homes, their families, and even their lives. This is what we're going to be looking at today as we turn in our Bible to Revelation chapter 2 and look at the church at Smyrna. As we look at the church there, we're going to see that even though the Christians knew that it could cost them their livelihood and their lives, they remained firm. They stood firm in their faith for Christ. Uh, And they were willing to sacrifice it all for God's call. Now, as we look at what they faced, I want us to look at our own lives today. I want us to ask ourselves this morning, what are we willing to sacrifice for our faith? In Revelation 2, 8 through 11, we read this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, the letter is addressed to the angel of the the church in Smyrna. Now, as we talked about when we began our series on the seven churches, I told you that the Greek word used here is angelos, and it means a messenger. It can be used at times of an angelic messenger, as we think of those heavenly servants, but it is also used in other places of a human messenger. And we've seen that the, the letters in Revelation, when it says to the messenger, it's, it's written to the pastor, to the teaching elder, who were in each of these seven local churches. We talked the first, in the first sermon about how these were seven literal cities. These are not churches that represent a period of time in church history. These were local bodies of believer, believers. It would be like God writing a letter to Wayside Chapel in San Antonio, Texas today. And we looked at Ephesus last time, and now the courier is moving on around the circle to Smyrna. You'll recall that these letters were being sent by the Apostle John, who was the scribe God was using to to take the letter that Jesus was sending to these churches. He was in exile on that Isle of Patmos, and Ephesus was the first seaport. Now, Smyrna was also a seaport. It was located 35 miles to the north. And uh, Ephesus, I'm sorry, Smyrna was a large and affluent city. Now it's unique in that of the seven churches, the seven local cities, only the city of Smyrna today is a thriving uh, city with a population. Here are some of the ruins of the ancient city of Smyrna, and you'll notice this city is built all around it. There's half a million people who live there. It's modern-day Izmir uh, there in, in Turkey. And so... Uh, Smyrna was, was a city of about 100,000 people in John's day, a very significant-sized city. It, was, uh, it had a, a library. Uh, you remember there was one at Ephesus as well. These were centers of learning. These were centers of culture. Uh, Smyrna also was a place uh, that had elaborate architecture, and it, it had many buildings and pagan temples. Now, here's a picture of, of Smyrna from the 1800s. And you'll notice coming out of the harbor, there's this, this road that you begin to see going up. Now, many of the ancient buildings and temples were removed at the time. But I'm going to talk in a moment about what you see up there on the hill, that citadel. But the, the city of Smyrna had this, this harbor, and there was something called the Golden Road that would go up from the harbor. And all along the road were temples, literally from A to Z. Zeus was up there on the top of the mountain, and you had Asclepius and others that were down there. But one of the main temples of the city was to Cybele. And this was the, the pagan goddess of nature. She was believed to be uh, the personification of the seasons. And they worshipped her and said that, that in the, the winter, when everything died, she had died physically. But when spring came, she rose from the dead, and as her life was renewed, the land was renewed. Now, I share that background because you'll recall that as we looked at these letters, I told you that each one begins with a description of Jesus Christ, his attributes, his characteristics, and they also tie into the culture of the city. And you see as this letter is being written by Christ to the believers there, he's combating the culture and the false worship of Cybele because what he says in verse 8 is, he is the one who is the first and the last. Jesus is the one who was dead and has come to life. It was not this false god, Cybele, that would, was believed to have died and rose over and over. It was Jesus Christ. 
You'll recall in Luke 24, 5 through 6, that when the angels were at Jesus' tomb and the people came looking to, to find him there in the tomb, still buried, they said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. It is not this false goddess who rose from the dead, but it is Jesus Christ. And as he tells the believers this, it's not just combating the culture of the day, but it would be an encouragement to them because these were Christians who were facing death. And Jesus says, I am the one who has power over death. I am the life. I'm the way home, and I'm the one who can bring you back. The Bible tells us in Matthew 10:28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see here in verse 10, Jesus says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, Jesus wasn't promising them, oh, you're not going to be martyred. What he says is, you're going to die. But he says, when your earthly life is over, I have something waiting for you. I have the gift of eternal life. The crown of life, uh, as he speaks of it here, uh, again, this ties directly in with the culture. I told you to look up on the hill, and what you see there is this citadel, a fort. Now, the temple to Zeus was located up there uh, during the days as John wrote the letter. And it was a white colonnade marble uh, structure that was high up, and as the sun would, would reflect off it, it would glow. And it was called in the ancient world the crown of Smyrna. And so as these believers were living in that city, as they were facing the possibility of death, they could look up uh, from the city and see this landmark, this crown of Smyrna. And God said, I have something better for you, something eternal, which is the crown of life that is waiting for you in heaven. Now, as these Christians are facing this, it's a reminder to us in our day as well. Here in America, there's, there's a good possibility that those of us who are living today would not face martyrdom for our faith. Those the culture continues to erode, people wonder, where will it end? But what the Bible reminds us of as believers in Philippians 3.20 is that our citizenship is not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our permanent home is in heaven. And so as we're reading through this letter, you may say, well, I'm not going to face martyrdom, but you and I do face decisions each day that affect uh, how we live, what we uh, may be uh, persecuted against in this world. The, the, the news is full of what's happening. Christian businessmen and women who are facing decisions about losing their livelihood. Uh, there's the court case right now that's just happened where somebody, the, the clerk from Kentucky is in jail and others are saying, where will it stop? And what you and I have to ask ourselves as believers today is, will we stand firm for our faith? However you see the culture, however the decisions are that you make, you and I have to decide what will we do. Will we stand for our faith? Among the, the many pagan gods that were worshipped in Smyrna, there was also the worship of the Roman emperors. This was uh, in 23 AD, the Roman Senate granted Smyrna the right over 11 other cities to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. And, su and subsequently, there were several other emperor temples that were built there. And you'll recall that they were worshipped as gods. And so what they were, believers were told to do is to go into the temple. They were to burn a pinch of incense on the altar and declare that Caesar was Lord. And if you did not do this, you would face death. And beyond the, the death that would come, a physical death, when you did this, you were given a certificate that you would then take and it said that you were a citizen in good standing and it allowed you to conduct business, it allowed you to buy and sell 
goods. It allowed you to go into the Agora, the marketplace there, and, and buy food to feed your family. But without this certificate, you could not uh, do any of these things. Archaeologists have uncovered these various certificates. In chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, we see where something like this is coming during the days of the Great Tribulation. Because in Revelation 13, 17, it says, No one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, as we talk about what's happening in Smyrna, I want you to ask yourself again for a moment, what would you do? If you had to do something like that where you went to a a pagan temple and had to burn a little pinch of incense and declare Caesar is Lord in order to get a certificate that would allow you to live, to conduct business, to buy food, to do various things, what would you do? I mean, you can sit here at the moment and say, well, Roger, it's just an empty act. I, I, I know that I'm not really meaning Caesar's Lord when I'm, you know, throwing, throwing a little incense on the altar. It's, it's you know, just, just not really that big a deal, is it? Well, again, that's a question you have to ask yourself. The Bible tells us we are not to worship any other gods except the true God. And by declaring that Caesar is Lord, what about the Christians in our day who are being brought before ISIS and others and being, de- being told, declare that Allah is God and Jesus is not if you want to live? And if you don't, all the atrocities happen to you. Again, these are decisions that people in our day are facing. As Christians, we hear that salvation is free, and it is. But it can also have a great cost attached to it. And we have to ask ourselves, how faithful will we, will we be? Will we be those who are salt and light, who will stand in opposition to the culture, who will suffer consequences even in our day? Second Timothy 3.12 tells us, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, living our lives for the Lord means we're in opposition to the world. And it means there will be things we may have to give up. Now, while it means that we can lose things in the world, we need to remember, as I said earlier, this place is not our home. We are simply passing through. The believers were reminded the crown of Smyrna is not all that there was in this world. There was a crown of life, the place that we will go, heaven. And Jesus was telling them these things because he wanted them to to be reminded of, of what they faced. Another thing that helps us is he says in Revelation 2, 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, the Greek word that is used here is thalipsis. Thalipsis is a, is a word that means trouble, tribulation, or oppression. And it was literally used uh, to describe the process where you would apply pressure uh, to something like grapes or olives to crush them and squeeze the juices out. Uh, there were these, these large wheels that were used. These are stones, boulders. That this is a, you know, you would put the, the product in there and people would push this thing around in a circle and as it crushed it, there was a place where the, the juices would run out. And as he says, I know the pressure, the tribulation that you guys are facing. Uh, it described the process that they were enduring. It was also used of torture in that day because what they would do to Christians is they would lay them out, stake them to the ground in this 20,000-seat stadium there in Smyrna, and they would take massive boulders and roll them over the Christians, slowly crushing them to death. And so as he says, I know the tribulation, 
the crushing pressure that you faced. It was a literal thing that was happening to them. And Jesus says, I know personally what that is like. Because he had the weight of the world, the sin of the world placed upon him as he was hung on a cross. And his blood was literally crushed out of him as well as he was beaten and as he was suffocating that death. So this this picture where he says to the Christians, I understand fully what you're suffering is one that would have been an encouragement to them because he says, I myself have been there. As Jesus died that crushing death as he sacrificed for us as well, this is what 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The word poverty that is used there is, is a, a word that we're going to focus on here in a moment. But before we talk about that, I want you to notice that it says we're rich. That as Christians, it says, yet for your sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Now, there are those in our day, the prosperity gospel preachers who focus and say, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What God promises you is worldly wealth and pleasure and no trouble. And didn't we just read where Peter said, if you're going to live a godly life, you're going to have tribulation. That's a promise. He doesn't promise that our bank accounts are going to be fat and that we're going to be, you know, no worries in this world. What he says is there will be things that believers face in this world. And it's not a a promise of riches here on earth. Now, we are promised riches. Uh, The riches that we have are heavenly riches. Ephesians 1.3 says, For we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, it's not just the gift of eternal life that is waiting for us, but God says there are all kinds of riches beyond which you can even imagine. And part of the riches that God does promise to us here on earth in this present life, the Christian life is not just all about what is coming. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly here on earth. And part of what God offers to us as believers is his peace and his presence. Those are things that are, that are far uh, surpassing all the stuff of the world. All through this week, I've, I've been with families again that have been facing crushing situations, chronic health issues. Uh, I, we have a, a young woman in our church that just delivered a baby at 26 weeks. And so, you know, her, her baby was one pound, six ounces. And we were there with her in the hospital praying for her and her husband as they were struggling with, God, what are you doing? And, you know, this, this little girl, Emma, please be in prayer for her. She was born yesterday. And the doctors are amazed. She's, she's healthier than they anticipated, all these other things. But these are things where this is a family that said, what I need at this moment is God's peace. It passes all understanding. And those are the things that God promises to us. God gives us these things here on earth. And this is what he was giving to these believers. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. You see, he wasn't promising I'm going to remove the tribulation from you. He says, but you don't have to fear because I'm with you in it. I'm the God of Psalm 23 that says, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God is there with us. He takes us through it. Now, I said that you see the word poverty there at the end. And he says in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. Now, the, the Greek word that is used here is petoheia. 
This, this is a, a, a word that means abject poverty. It speaks of absolute and utter destitution. It means to have absolutely nothing. There's another Greek word, uh, panea. And, and this is a word that means to be extremely poor as well. Literally a hand-to-mouth existence. But he goes even deeper and he says, <laughs> y'all are facing abject poverty, total destitution. And the contrast of the Christian in that day with the, the rest of the world would have been night and day difference because Smyrna was the most wealthy of all the cities in Asia at the time. This was like living in the Beverly Hills area of California. And there you had a person who, if they were lucky, had rags to wear and nothing to eat. They were utterly destitute. And it's not because only the poor people were coming to Christ. When a person came to Christ, what it was, was they faced the possibility of losing everything. Deny Jesus and you keep your home, you keep your business, you have the ability to buy and sell and eat and work and all this. But if you don't deny him, then it's like what Christians face under ISIS, this Islamic terrorist group that is over in the Middle East today that is, are going into cities and seizing their homes and saying, you have to pay this crippling tax if you're going to be a Christian. And then when the money is gone, they take their homes and they take their lives, either as slaves or all the atrocities you hear about, and, and then they face death. And this is what the Christians in this day were facing. It's not just happening over in Syria and Iraq. It's also in North Korea and China and Egypt and Somalia and Afghanistan. On and on the list goes. Again, we sit here in America and, and we're upset about the, the liberties that we as believers are watching erode in our country. But there are people all around the world who are facing total and absolute devastation, losing everything they have including their lives for their faith. And as they're facing this suffocating situation, you think of a boulder slowly being rolled over you, slowly squeezing the life out of you, crushing and suffocating you and, and, and crushing your bones and lungs and bleeding to death, just that slow torture. That's what it is like for these Christians as they watch their family starving to death and being repeatedly tortured and beaten and raped and these things that are happening. And you think about what would you do in that moment? Would you stand firm? Or would you just say, it's not worth it? Why not throw a little pinch of incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord or Allah is God and, and walk away from your faith? And what God says to these believers is, stay faithful. There is a time coming and we say sometimes, well, God, if you're really God and you're powerful and you're able to do all things, then why don't you just wipe out the enemy? As you keep reading in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, you'll see that there are martyrs who are under the throne of God. They are physically there in heaven. They're given a robe to put around so you see their physical presence. And they cry out and they ask that very question, God, how long? Why won't you avenge our death? Why won't you bring justice onto the earth? And, and God says, be patient. The time is not yet finished. There are more who will die. And we as believers sometimes wrestle with this and we go, God, what are you doing? And in those moments, I hold on to Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. 
And in those moments, we have to say, God has the eternal picture in his hand. He knows what is happening. And what we can hold on to as believers is the promise that in the end, things will be right. In the end, God and his people will win. And what he says to us today in our day is stand firm. Don't compromise. Don't give in to the culture. Be those who live for me. Now, as you think of that boulder rolling over people and also just as it would squeeze out the juices of fruit, uh, the name Smyrna is an interesting name because it is a transliteration of the Greek word myrrh. Now, many of you know that myrrh was an embalming spice that was used to embalm dead bodies. Uh, It was also used um, for uh, the anointing oil in Exodus Exodus 30, verses 23 in the temple. It's what was used in the worship of God. It It was a sweet, fragrant spice that was very expensive. And there's this word play as the Christians in Smyrna live their lives in this crushing persecution. God said, uh, you are literally myrrh. You are something that uh, is described in Philippians 4.18 as God says of the believers there in Philippi that their sacrifice as they lived their lives was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And what Jesus says to them is, I am well pleased with you. There are, of the seven letters in Revelation, only two have no words of correction for the Christians. One is in Smyrna and one is in Philadelphia. And so what God says is, I'm well pleased with you as believers. What you're facing and going through and how you're standing firm. But you see in verse 9 that he has words of correction for those who are not Christians. He says in verse 9, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. You see, when Jesus says they are not Jews, he's not speaking of their ethnic identity. There were ethnic Jewish people there in the city. But what he's speaking of is their heart. Uh, The the Bible tells us that God is not concerned with the externals, like the external sign of circumcision. The scripture says we need to be circumcised in our heart. And these are people who had not had their, their heart changed and their actions were revealing it as they stood against those who were Christians. In Romans two twenty eight through 29, we're told, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, that is the law, and his praise is not from men but from God. And so what Jesus is talking about here are those who should have stood for God. And he says, you guys have given in. You're the ones who are joining in with the compromise of the culture. Now, these letters were written around 90 AD. And as you think about John there in exile in Patmos, and he's writing this letter to the Christians in Smyrna off the coast and what they were facing, this is, this is persecution that went on for, for a long, long time. In 155 AD, there was a a man by the name of Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the the highest religious leader in the city. In fact, he was a disciple of the apostle John, and he is most likely the messenger that the letter was written to. Imagine being Polycarp, who as a young man, you receive this letter from your mentor, and you read it to the Christians the congregation, and you say, listen, men and women, we are facing hard times. Many of us here today will die. And about 60 years after he originally read that letter to the Christians, he was faced with that very decision himself. Because at 86 years of age, Polycarp was arrested. 
He was brought before uh, the proconsul of Rome, and he was told, I hear you're not willing to burn incense and declare Caesar as Lord. And he says, out of respect for your age, I'm going to give you a chance. Remember, he's been dragged into this 20,000-seat stadium there in Smyrna. The crowds are all around. There were Christians who would be thrown to the wild beasts there. The gladiators would kill them. This, this was the sport. Hey, we're going to go watch more Christians get killed. And they bring this 86-year-old man, and they place him there in the center of the Colosseum. And he says, you have an opportunity to deny Jesus and live. Out of respect for your age, we're going to give you a, another chance. Now, Polycarp responded this way. 86 years I have served the Lord and he has never wronged me. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Now, that's not the answer the guy wanted to hear. So the proconsul says to Polycarp, I have wild beasts and I will throw you to them if you do not repent. He said, you're to say away with the atheists. They used to call the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. And so Polycarp looks at this stadium full of people and he says, away with the atheists those of you who are non-believers. Now, Polycarp, as he said for that, the, the guy got angry, and, and Polycarp says, call for the wild beast, for we cannot repent from that which is better to that which is worse. But it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. The proconsul stands and screams, and he says, I will have you burned at the stake. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour and is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you want. Now, Polycarp was dragged out of the stadium. He was brought to the marketplace, the center, and they were going to nail him to this stake. And he said, you don't need to nail me. I'm not going to move. Go ahead. They tie him to this pole. Now, it was the Jews of Smyrna on the Sabbath who went and collected the wood and piled it around. And if you know, the Jewish law says they couldn't lift anything more than a, uh, the weight of a fig or a couple feathers. And they're bringing this wood and logs and piling it around this Christian leader. And he was told one more time to deny his faith and he wouldn't do it. So they came and they lit the flames. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs says that the flames swirled around him but would not touch Polycarp. And they got so angry, they finally stabbed him to death because the fire would not burn him. And he gave his life for his faith. You know, as we think about these things, on more than one occasion, I've been in seminaries around the world teaching Christians who have faced this in our day. I, I have talked to brothers and sisters face to face who tell me my father, my grandfather, was put in prison, was tortured. My mother has been killed for her faith. I've talked to leaders who have pulled up their, their sleeves or raised their shirt and shown me their backs where they have stripes from the torture, where they have marks from the chains that they themselves have suffered. And they've said to me, Roger, we are praying for you in America. And we are praying that you would be persecuted. Now you're thinking, well, thanks, right? <laughs> what is it, misery loves company? No. They tell me we're praying for you in America to be persecuted for this very reason, that it will purify your faith, that it will bring out the true church among the stuff that is going on. Just like those Chinese soldiers who burst through the door and said, deny Christ or die, and people ran out of the church. If that were to happen this morning at Wayside, how many would get up and walk out that door? 
If you knew that people were waiting in the parking lot with clubs to beat you when you left, how many of you wouldn't come to worship? If you knew people were taking down your license plate and following you around so that you would lose your job next week, how many of you would be here to worship? This is what Christians around the world face. And these Christians have told me, Roger, we are praying that you in America would face this so that the church would be real. You know, as you look around the world in the places where persecution has happened, those are the places where the church is exploding. Look at Africa, where the the Muslim crusades are coming down from the north and, and people are being kidnapped and villages wiped out and on and on. And the church in Africa is exploding you, you look at places like uh, China, where when the church was forced underground, everybody thought the church would die, and millions and millions have come to faith in Jesus. You look at what's happening in Korea. North Korea is said to be the most dangerous place in the world for a believer today. And as you go over the border into South Korea, they are the largest senders of missionaries in our day out into the world. And you look at the history of the South Korean church just going back about 100 years and you say, what have they faced? Communist oppression. They they went through um, the period where there were Japanese captors during those days who came in and built Shinto shrines and they would drag the Christians in. And they would say, just like in Smyrna, burn a pinch of incense to the emperor and declare him as a god. They they were told to bow down to images, uh, pictures of the Japanese emperor who was worshipped as a god and declare he was god or die. And these are churches that as they have gone through the persecution, they have, they have exploded. The, the Korean Christians have a saying. They say, we're like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. And as you look at the, the worldwide church, it is being watered by the blood of martyrs and the fruit that it is bearing is coming through this time of persecution. You know, none of us want to face persecution. But as we go through it in our day, as we look at a culture that is becoming less and less popular to be a believer, we're going to have to make choices. Will we stand for Christ or will we cave into the culture around us? As we look at the suffering that is coming, look at what God says in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. He doesn't say in 10 days you get out. He says, then you die and I will give you the crown of life. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may not in me, you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, as I said, none of us wants to face persecution. But when we face it, this is what Romans tells us in Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says, we exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, another reason that we are allowed to face suffering in this world, the church goes through these things, is as I said, it's how the church explodes and grows. As people look and they say, is there really something worth dying for? Why, why are you willing to go through this? I mean, just go along with the crowd, burn a little incense, Caesar is Lord, give in to the culture. It's not a big thing. As Paul was going to face suffering in his day, Jesus said in Acts 9, 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
And what God does is he uses these things for his glory, for his namesake. As people say, you know, is there something in this world really worth dying for? Really worth living for? We're called to die daily. You know, dying a quick death at some ways is easier. It's that slow, suffocating, day by day, dying for our faith where we suffer a little bit more at work or at school or, or, you know, are mocked on a regular basis. Those are the slow, suffocating, crushing things that often people give into. In James 1.12, we're told, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is a victor's crown. It is a, a special crown in heaven. It's not the crown of life that all Christians receive. We will all be saved uh, once we place our faith in Christ. It's kind of like getting a Purple Heart medal. You know, only those who are soldiers who are wounded in a wartime situation receive that special award. And this is a special reward for those who persevered through times of trial and tribulation. Now today, we don't have the crown of Smyrna. We can't look up at the hillside and see that. But friends, we can look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can be reminded how he was crushed for our transgressions how he died to save us, how he gave his life so that we might have the gift of eternal life. And he calls on us to live our lives for him. In verse 11, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You see, there is a physical death, we will all die. Our earthly bodies one day, God says, we're done with these. This life we know on this planet will be over. But then comes something called the second death. And the second death, as you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, speaks of the great white throne judgment where non-believers come before him. And those whose names are not in the book of life, those who have not received him by faith, are thrown into the lake of fire, what we call hell. And it says that is the second death. And so God says in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Those who were persecuting the Christians in Smyrna could kill the body, but they had no power when it came to the second death. And Jesus said, you have just a little bit of suffering in this world, and then you have eternity. And he says, stand firm. In verse 11 of Revelation 2, he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What does it mean to overcome? It's our faith in Jesus Christ. This is how 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5 uh, defines what it means to overcome. It says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Men and women, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today, to come to faith in Jesus. As we come to the communion table now, we're reminded of the death that Jesus died on our part to conquer the first death and the second death. You see, Jesus conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead. He is the firstborn. He is the one who rose from the dead. And he says, for those of us who place our faith in him, we don't have to worry about the first death. All that is, is our elevator ride home to heaven. When our life on this earth is over, it means we get our promotion. 
And that's if we've received Jesus as our Savior. D.L. Moody once said, if you're born once physically, then you die twice. But if you're born twice physically and spiritually, then you only die once. And so as we come to this communion table today, we're reminded of Jesus who died for us. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he allow himself to go to a cross to be crushed, to have his blood spilled for us? Because the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to pay the penalty. The penalty for our sin is death. And Christ said, I am willing to come. I, who was rich beyond glory that you can imagine, was willing to set it aside and become poor, poverty-stricken for you, so that I could take your place and my place on the cross and pay that penalty of death. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we come to this communion table, we're about to take a piece of bread. It represents the body of Christ, his physical form that was given on our behalf. God gave him flesh and blood because the book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. He took on flesh and blood so he could take our place and be our sacrifice. And he went to the cross and he paid that penalty of death. And it says that if we will receive that, if we will accept his death in our place, the account is wiped clean, is paid in full. In John 19.30, as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, to Teleste, literally paid in full. What was paid in full? The penalty of our sin. He died, he canceled the debt, he closed the account. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to invite you, if you're ready, to say to God, God, I'm ready to turn from my sin and to you, Jesus, to be my Savior, to take that piece of bread. And to tell God, God, I'm taking this, accepting your son as my savior. I want you to take the cup and say, Jesus, I recognize this is your blood that was spilled to wash away my sins. I accept your death in my place. And as you do that, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. For the rest of us who have received Christ in the past, I want you to take the bread and the cup as well and to hold them and to take a moment to meditate on your life and say, am I living my life for you, God? Where do I need to confess that I've compromised, that I've turned from you? Use this time to to say to God, you're sorry, to repent of your sins, to turn back to him and say, God, I'm going to be faithful for you. When I go back to work this week, when I go into my schools, as I am faced with that next situation where in the past I've caved in, uh, God, give me the courage and the strength to stand for you. Take a moment now to pray as you take the elements, hold them, and we'll take them together. Men, will you serve us, please?
we hold this piece of bread in our hand, I want you to remember what it represents. It represents the Son of God and his sacrifice, his willingness to leave heaven to come to earth, to take my place and yours. Picture for a moment what he went through, the suffering he endured, the tribulation that he went through. That's how much he loved us. That he was willing to give his very life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. And so as we're faced with those decisions to deny him, to hide our faith, to compromise in the culture, remember that Jesus knew full well what he was facing when he gave up his glory to come to earth and ultimately to give his life. He gave it for you and me. And he calls on us to live our lives for him, the body of Christ, seated in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup of juice. But it's more than juice. It represents the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who is willing to have his very lifeblood poured out, spilled because of my sin and your sin, to wash away our sin, to remove the, the separation that, that we created as we sinned and, and created that separation from God. He built that bridge home for us. And he tells us as we go through this life, he knows it can be hard to live for him. He told these believers, you will suffer tribulation. He tells all of us that those of us who desire to live for Christ will face uh, hard things in this world. Maybe not as hard as some of our brothers and sisters around the world, but they are still hard for us. And he tells us to endure, to persevere, to stand through it, recognizing that there is something waiting for us in heaven, the crown of life, the blood of Jesus Christ, drink it in remembrance of him. May you join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for love that was demonstrated not only when you went to the cross to die for us, but love as you continue to, to live within us. You promise us, Father, that never will you leave us or forsake us. You've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit, God, to live within us to strengthen, and encourage, and help, and guide us. And so, Father, we thank you that as we face these things, we may feel at times that we're all alone, but we're not. You're with us. And so, Father, as we walk out of the doors of this church, would you go with us? Would you help us to be your light, your witnesses in a world that needs to know the truth, in a world that needs to know, yes, there is something worth dying for and giving up all the passing pleasures of this earth. And it's for the things that are permanent that will last for all eternity. So send us out now, Lord, as your witnesses into the world. 
Thank you for the gift of new life. May we live our lives for you. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are prayer leaders here at the front. If you have a need, we'd invite you to come and talk with them, pray with them. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.